ladies and gentlemen, you know me. Uh, maybe here and there I make a cynical joke, but I hope for the most part that I am a positive person putting out positive things into the universe. That's why this last month has been such a strain. A new law has passed by California legislators, uh, particularly Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez and signed by Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, this new law has sent the world of California-based freelancers into a tailspin. The bill's original intent was aimed at providing greater protections to gig economy and misclassified workers like Uber and Lyft drivers and others. The bill was seemingly written so broadly, though, that multiple communities of freelance writers, musicians, artists, translators, photographers, and more have all been impacted. Here's one key provision that has sent California-based freelancers like myself into a sweat. A freelance writer can now only submit 35 pieces of work every year before a company must bring them on as a full-time employee. If you're one of these California writers who does news reporting, say for IGN or GameSpot, you will easily meet that quota in about a month, and then you're out of luck. If a company is found violating these new restrictions, they're liable to be sued by the state. To that end, companies like Vox and GameSpot have now begun to decline hiring California-based freelance writers. I'm lucky in the fact that I have two hourly freelance jobs between IGN and PC Gamer, so I'm not that affected, but I still have lost some work. But the law is still making it difficult for outlets to do anything but cut those writers off, and the end result is that freelancers continue to suffer. But I also started to think... Could this have an impact on game developers too, game developers who work as freelancers? I searched high and low, but it's actually really difficult to find any data on how many game developers are freelance or contractors. Uh, the GDC survey, which actually just recently released, did not include any such information. And people might make a joke, that's because freelancers can't afford to go to GDC. But regardless, you can't throw a stone in any game dev community without meeting a few people who work as freelance. The industry from indie to AAA all rely on freelance game devs. So I wanted to bring in someone who has been following AB5 as a legal issue for some time now, and I'm really excited to learn his professional take on the matter, not just for my well-being, but for yours. I have business attorney Richard Hogue of the Hogue Law Firm and the YouTube series Virtual Legality. Rick, how are you, man? I'm doing okay. I am uh, enjoying life here in Michigan where it's a little bit snowy, a little bit colder than I suspect it is out there for you. Uh, but other than that, we are doing fine. I am definitely in the camp. Uh, this past week, it suddenly started hitting like 70 and even a high of 80 <laughs> once. So I'm I'm living that California dream, at least still in some ways. Good, good, good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about, um, I, I think you and I actually, I, I failed to mention this earlier, but I think you and I have actually corresponded a little bit, and I'm sure some of my colleagues have corresponded with you uh, previously at GameDaily.biz. Yeah. Uh, just kind of talking about that being a more business-focused site, we would talk to you about, of course, legal matters in the games industry. And uh, tell me a little bit about what got you into law, and particularly what got you into law concerning uh, game companies and tech companies like the ones that we uh, deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from the very start of really being in law school, I wanted to focus on business and business transactions. 
Uh, those around me, my family members and whatnot would tell me I should go to law school because I like fighting with people, but that really wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do litigation. I wanted to help people come together, do these transactions, and, and working with business made a lot of sense to me from that perspective. I had an economics degree before I went to law school. I liked thinking about the numbers, how businesses operate, how they form, how they function. And so when I left law school, which is now 2005, which feels like yesterday to me, but now looking at the calendars a few years back, <laughs> uh, I started doing venture capital in and around Ann Arbor, uh, which is the location of the University of Michigan and has a very robust technological element to it. It does pharmaceuticals and life sciences and software. Uh, and then 2008, 2009 rolls around, venture capital starts slowing down a little bit. And I'm working in a law firm at the time, and they say, basically, go find some stuff that you're interested in to figure out how to market some additional legal services. And at that point in time, I've always loved games. That's been a hobby of mine, an industry of mine. That's something I've shared with my brother, who's a game developer, my father, who really started that all out for me. Uh, and so that kind of went along with finding a place in the software as a service kind of legal community, especially in Michigan, whereas in 2008, 2009, software as a service was something that was happening uh, somewhat. Uh, but was really coming to the fore. They needed legal experts. They needed people to run that practice group to really focus on that. That led to going to IGDA meetings in Michigan. That led to game developers as part of my client base. So when I ultimately left that firm to form my own in 2016, one of the things in terms of having the conversation of figuring out how to market, how to talk about these various issues with people was finding out how social media worked, getting involved in Twitter, getting involved in YouTube, finding people like you at Game Daily Biz, now at IGN and elsewhere, uh, and having those conversations from a place of expertise for an industry and a kind of news cycle that maybe doesn't always have that kind of focus. Uh, and so because I have that kind of background in software companies, in tech companies, in forming companies, funding them, all these kinds of things, I started virtual legality somewhat as an experiment uh, because I had a couple of clients that were YouTubers that get this analytic data back that I didn't exactly know what they were seeing and I wanted to be able to better talk to them about mm -hmm. what they were doing on that platform. I said, okay, I can talk at length. Uh, I think we can do this. We can see what that looks like. My wife, always supportive, told me it was an absolutely stupid idea. Nobody would be interested <laughs> in listening to me talk about law for 40 minutes at a time. Uh, but as it turns out, there are at least a few people that do, and it's been a lot of fun kind of figuring that out, getting involved with things like uh, this, this podcast, podcasts in general, and having these conversations in hopefully a way that is, you know, educational and illuminating uh, without kind of the ad hominem attacks and the disparagement that you can see online. Uh, with a little luck, that's what I'm doing. That's why I'm doing it uh, with virtual legality and YouTube and things like this podcast. Uh, but that's my background. That's I love games. I love tech, better living through technology. And I have a background in law and economics, and, and thus you find me here. And, you know, I, I do appreciate it when individuals like yourself come onto the scene and uh, try to give a, a really <clears throat> experienced and learned perspective on the, the more business-focused matters that impact our industry. Because I'll freely admit, I, I think even for as big as uh, outlets like IGN or GameSpot might be, there is still a sort of brain drain might not be the right word, but it kind of feels like the right one of younger writers uh, in their 20s, like myself, 
may not necessarily have the tool set and the and the experience to to write about like well what does this business merger mean or what does this uh this new business deal mean or what does this new law mean for the industry sure. and uh i definitely i i could have interviewed you know uh, a, someone maybe higher up in the like california freelance writer uh associations out there but i really wanted to get a, a legal perspective on ab5 because of course it's been such a confusing issue and i think that outside of california probably there's plenty of people still who have no idea what ab5 is and how it could potentially impact both games media and the game industry so on that note, in legal terms, what is what is the elevator pitch for AB5? Sure. So I think in order to talk about AB5, you first have to talk about independent contractors versus employees. And we don't have to dive deep into what those are, but they're two different buckets that a person that works for another company can find themselves in. And for purposes of this discussion, an independent contractor is someone that the employer doesn't have to worry about paying payroll taxes for, paying unemployment insurance, some other things that are regulatory in nature, especially in California, where they have a very specific, very highly regulated labor code. Uh, and so if you find yourself as an independent contractor and you're an employer, then that gets you some benefits. It's a little bit lower cost. So you get a, out from the regime of the regulatory infrastructure. Employees, on the other hand, are those folks that are supposed to be getting those benefits, they're supposed to be getting the benefit of having some protection for workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, all these kinds of things that go along with that. Yes, they raise the price for the employer, but that's kind of the design of how the labor code works together. Before AB5 gets passed, and before another case we're going to talk about called Dynamax in California mm -hmm. specifically, the basic rule under the federal rules of kind of labor classification is a huge multi-part balancing test. Uh, now, if, if you haven't been with me watching virtual legality, you know we talk about balancing tests a lot. But basically in the law, this means that there's a whole set of things that if you come up in front of a judge or an agency, they're going to balance these various factors against you or for you in determining what it is that they're looking at under the law. So in this particular case, they say, okay, they've got a claim that somebody is making that you really should have been classified as an employee and not an independent contractor. And if you take this to federal court, you're going to have this multi-factor balancing test where they determine whether or not, essentially, the employer has enough control over what you are doing for them. And that looks at whether you're using the employer's laptop. That looks at whether you're going to the employee's, employer's office. That looks at whether they can control your hours and other things that all go into these big, giant buckets and that can be balanced one way or the other. And that they all come together to come to a determination on a facts and circumstances basis that that agency or that judge is going to look at. What AB5 comes in and does is it says, we don't really love balancing tests. Those are very confusing for everybody. We are going to make a hard and fast, bright line rule that we are going to essentially impose on, I'm going to use the word every, but one of the problems with AB5 is there's kind of nested exceptions to it in various yeah. degrees and with various requirements. And that's one of the things that's really confusing everybody. But they come in and they say, we are going to adopt what we call the ABC test. And the ABC test says the state of California is going to assume that everybody that performs services for an employer is an employee. That's the assumption. That's the baseline. That's important in the law because where the baseline stands is, is essentially going to set who has the obligation to prove that baseline wrong. So we're going to assume that every person that provides services is an employee unless the employer can show all of the following. 
And the ABC test is basically that one, the worker is free from the control of the employer, which is its own kind of difficulty. Free from the control is a pretty high standard, but probably not the thing that's driving a lot of this problematically in terms of AB5. The second prong is the biggest issue. The second prong says that the employer, if they want to show that this person is a contractor, has to show that the worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. In other words, if you are otherwise just signed up as a contractor, you don't have to go into their office, you don't have to use their laptop, you can perform services at any hour of the day, whenever you would like, if that is nonetheless what the company does, then the state of California is going to find you to be an employee, regardless of the fact that all that control doesn't exist. So in a, in a sense, like if, if I'm a writer for a website or a game developer for a game company, emphasis being on uh, you'd have to be doing something other than the fairly standard day-to-day operations of what they do, which would mean me writing news or a game or a freelance game dev, like creating animation or art assets or something would never succeed under that test. That's right. This is designed to aim at, okay, so you're at IGN and they contract out for plumbing services because the toilets are backed up. That guy isn't IGN's employee uh, because that's not what IGN does. Um, But to the extent that they put out a website and they do, you know, videos and everything else, if you're involved in that pipeline, that's going to be their ordinary course of business. And if you find yourself in that, even if you otherwise have all the control in the world, California says you're an employee now, uh, with all these exceptions that we're going to talk about. Uh, The last one is that the worker has to be engaged independently in the established trade occupation or business of the nature of the work that is being provided. Uh, Said another way, they can't be uh, exclusive. They're supposed to be essentially out there as a writer uh, or out there as whatever it is that they are doing and, and can go mm-hmm. to various places. It's it's That one's a little bit more nebulous. But again, I think everybody's focused on the second prong because that's the really tricky part. There are a lot of industries that right now uh, across the country, but in California as well, are kind of premised on, yep, you have full-time employees, but also you have certain things that are contractor-based. You know, we talk about uh, in the software industry, and, and games are included in this, the kind of project focus of getting things out the door. And sometimes that means you bulk up for a short period of time, uh, and that's usually on a contract basis. Uh, and so you've got all these kinds of questions that arise with AB5. And the biggest one is, rather than a balancing test, it is a hard and fast bright line rule with exceptions, and that has certain negative ramifications. It, it doesn't afford the flexibility that a balancing test does. You could look for all the world and including the federal government in that statement as a contractor in the state of California will call you an employee and you find yourself under California employment law. And that's, that's going to be an issue. That's, that's reflected in the fact that you're seeing a lot of people shy away from using contractors in the state of California. So what is, what is this background history then with uh, the Dynamex ruling? Uh, Because that is, that is something that you very consistently see Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez uh, referencing when AB5 critics, uh, you know, pop up in her Twitter feed. Uh, essentially, it, it seems like the the emphasis they're trying to place on is that, like, well, because we have this previous rule, nothing really has changed. But that doesn't obviously seem to be the case. I would say that that is wrong. And it's <laughs> if you do follow me online, you'll know me saying absolutes like that is very rare. Uh, but yeah, it's <laughs> um, what happened with Dynamax is that there are a series of wage orders in California 
things like minimum wage, things that are requirements on a regulatory basis for employees in certain industries. Uh, in this case, Dynamax, I believe, was a was a courier service, uh, and they had in like early 2004, 2005, something along those lines, had changed their employees to be contractors, to use independent contracts. And they had one of those contractors sue them. And that gives you a good kind of understanding of how long things take to filter through the various courts. Because this Dynamax decision was in 2018 uh, from one of these really early kind of claims against them. And the Dynamax case basically said this ABC test will apply in this very specific circumstance to wage orders that are not being abided by what we think might be mischaracterized employees for this specific company. So that's the Dynamax decision. And one of the really interesting things about AB5 that we don't see in Michigan, I really haven't seen in most statutes around the country, is that AB5 actually goes and references Dynamax and references Borello, which is essentially the previous standard. So when you hear those two terms and you're reading an article about AB5 or you're otherwise talking about it with those around you, Dynamax is the new ABC test. That's the bright line rule. Borello is California's version of the old balancing test and what you see at the federal level and in the other states. Now, like with a lot of things in California, Borello is actually a little bit more stringent than even the federal rule and some of the other states rules. But that's the balancing test versus Dynamax's ABC test. And so what this law says is, Well, when the Dynamax case comes out, does it only apply to wage orders? Does it apply to the whole labor code? Does it apply to all this other stuff? And there was open question in California about whether it should be applied to things that don't have wage orders and things that aren't related specifically to Dynamax's industry, things along those lines. This bill came in and said, all right, we have to clarify this. We're going to adopt Dynamax across the code. It's going to apply Mm -hmm. to everything, the entirety of classification in the state of California. So when they say it doesn't change anything, It's true that it doesn't change what is the existing law of the land for wage orders in California, but that is a subset of all the labor code in California. And And, so it expands. And when you say say wage orders, what do you mean? Well, so California essentially has a series of regulatory uh, documents that apply specific rules to specific industries in a specific way under their labor code. They call those wage orders. And Mm a misclassified employee can come in and say, I should have been paid X under wage order Y and that kind of thing. That's how you get the Dynamax decision. Um, But each state is going to be pretty unique on how this all operates. And California is no exception to that. So the exact kind of mechanics of the wage order system is beyond my ken sitting here from afar. But that is a subset of all of what they do. And this applies it to the umbrella rather than just that wage order process. And, you know, to be fair, there, there, of course, this, this whole, this whole mess sucks for me because like, I would consider myself a, a liberal leftist who is pro worker, pro union. Uh, I, I desperately, desperately want greater worker protections for the kinds of people who work for Uber or Lyft or are like a janitor who's getting misclassified and that way their, their, the parent company can not have to give them health care, uh, sure. you know, tragedies like that. Uh, what were, what were, it just sucks that of course, like the the law was written so broadly that it impacted so many other industries. Uh, what were, I suppose, the issues companies and workers uh, faced before this? Like, is there actually something getting like really demonstrably fixed by this uh, AB5 law? Well, I mean, I think giving the benefit of the doubt, the certain legislature members that voted up this think there is. 
Um, I think from the reporting when AB5 was first kind of uh, proposed for the governor is when I did my first virtual reality video on it, uh, but it was signed really without any other modifications from that point in time. The articles you see at that time all talk about it being a win for gig employees, uh, Mm -hmm. right? That there is a class of people in the year 2020 or then 2019 uh, that is finding their way in the world economically through doing things like car sharing, like going and getting food for people. And they weren't otherwise getting the protections that basically the statutory code of the state of California were built around because they were old. I mean, the statutory code in any given state is going to be a certain amount of old and not reflective of the digital realities of the era. And so the state of California looked at that and said, there is this swath of people that is getting bigger by the day that is not as protected as we would want under the decisions that we have made from a public policy standpoint in the state of California. So we should go and we should grab those people and make sure they get these protections. And, you know, in terms of your kind of preamble there from your direction as to where you would like to see protections here, I don't blame you one bit. I think one can have a certain sympathy for, yeah, those people should be protected more, or we should at least look at the question and not like the cure that was proposed, right? Uh, right? Like there's a difference between there should be something done and uh, this something is wrong. Uh, and I think that one of the things that's happening here, and one of the reasons I did my video when I did, which was in September of last year, which was four months before it really was going to take effect, was the thing that was immediately obvious is that a certain swath of people might be protected, absolutely. A certain swath were going to lose their jobs or their availability of having that job, which is no surprise because without that flexibility, a number of employers are going to have to look at their bottom line numbers and kind of make decisions that we don't like. Uh, and so that always happens when you've got a new regime put into place. But I do think, I think your question was, you know, is this fixing anything? I think in every state in the union, there is a certain incentive for bad actors, particularly, but also the muddy middle to some extent, to misclassify employees, right? When we started this podcast, I said, employees get all the protections. Independent contractors really are contractors. For the most part, every right that they have is going to exist in that contract that they negotiated. And in general, when you talk about things like freelance writers, for instance, they're going to have a limited amount of leverage to negotiate a a proposed Mm -hmm. contract relationship. So they're going to have a limited amount of rights. And those rights make it cheaper for an employer, or in this case, an entity, to contract with that individual. And so if there is something where an employer has a relationship with somebody and they want to treat them as an independent contractor, but they also want them to come into the office five times a week. And they also want them to have a boss that looks over their materials. They also want to have all these things that make them look like employees. There's still an incentive from just a budget line item to go and classify them as independent contractors. In fact, the mischaracterization of employees is one of those issues you constantly see come up with the Department of Labor at the federal level and at the various departments of labor, whatever they might be called, various kind of letters uh, in agencies across the states, you see that come up all the time. That's something that we deal with uh, in employment law a lot and talking to my clients about, okay, well, you can't have, you want to treat this person as a contractor, but you also want them to come in and do this thing five days a week, nine to five, all this stuff. I say, yeah, you know, we're we're probably going to have to sign you up for unemployment insurance and do all this other stuff. That's part of what I kind of console clients on because I'm I'm helping companies get started. 
right? And those first three employees, maybe you do want them to be independent contractors because you only got a certain amount of money in the bank. And I can say, yeah, we can organize it this way to potentially have them be contractors, but you don't have this control. They can get you your work product in various fashions. And if you want that control, we have to go do this other thing. So mm-hmm. yes, this is designed to address, hey, you've got this incentive to be bad. Let's take that incentive away. And I think from my perspective, and this is just opinion, this isn't legal, it went too far. It, it, it goes a little bit too far in taking that flexibility away. And, and you're seeing that, as you say, I'm seeing that a lot from writers. Um, certainly the 35 entries is completely arbitrary. Um, you know, you could somewhat defend something like 52. You say, hey, it's a weekly column, something along sure, those lines. Yeah. But 35 is just out of nowhere. And you actually have quotes from the legislature on this. It says, oh, yeah, 35 was essentially plucked from the sky. And it's like, well, OK, that's not great. <laughs> That that really only works, yeah. If you're, um, I I have one or two peers who they may have like a mostly full time job at a site, but they supplement that with uh, freelance work at other major sites. And I asked one like, "Hey, are you are you getting impacted by AB five? Because I know you live in like the Silicon Valley area." And he's like, "Yeah, I, I I'm fine. I really only do like reviews or features of work. So like, you get the sense that like, oh, maybe if you publish." Uh, one thing every month or maybe two things every month you you'll get by but yeah. for but for games media jobs particularly uh just to, to say nothing of game dev uh the sweet spot for a lot of like beginning to mid-tier writers like myself is news jobs uh sure. where you're showing up yeah you're, you're just really showing up on like slack and uh able to Say, like, I'm around, you know, I'm doing other stuff, but, like, I'm around, and I would end up writing two to five stories every day. And, yeah, that is that is where I think uh, if you're not already someone like myself who has spent five years uh, building up relationships and work and gone to events and such, or you're not a, like, very talented features writer who's able to, you know, accrue $1,000 from one piece of work uh, that's that basically makes it really, really tough for younger and newer and marginalized writers to break into the industry. Sure. Uh, as a as a sort of preface to a different question, uh, from a legal perspective, I think it's I think it's been muddied up. What what kinds of penalties could a company get hit with if they violate this new law? Uh, if if IGN or GameSpot, whoever allows me to write more than thirty five things, and the government, you know, dings that, uh, what can they get hit with? Sure. Well, and you can see the issue just on the ground with that, right? So you're, they're going to count up your your pieces on a yearly basis. It's going to it's a difficult process just in terms of enforcement. Uh, but what they would get dinged with? This is a classification law. Right. So there is an injunctive kind of penalty thing at the end of this. But for the most part, it's just designed to say these people are now employees and they're no longer independent contractors. And so the entire ambit of the labor code should now apply to these people, including those portions of the labor code that say if you mischaracterize your subject to penalties. So this isn't really a new set of penalties. It's not that kind of regime. It changes who should be treated as an employee. And mm-hmm. if you fail to do that, what's called mischaracterization, then you have the penalties and statutory issues that you otherwise have in the state of California, which is X amount of dollars for not properly paying into the payroll taxes, not properly paying into unemployment 
not properly designating on their checks that you have taken those deductions, all these kinds of things. And and it would take us forever to go over the hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of all this. But suffice it to say, California agencies are more than willing to jump in on these issues. Uh, and they, they've demonstrated that across all industries, but the game industry even recently with the stuff like Riot Games and them trying to intervene on in the settlement there, if, if you're not familiar with it. But they do that regularly, and those penalties will apply. California also has, uh, I believe, a, a private cause of action for these kinds of things. They have a separate uh, piece of their statute that allows the employees themselves to go and essentially whistleblow uh, and ask for the punitive damages and the penalties to they get a portion of that. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's also going to incentivize the, the companies to try to get it right. And ultimately, a lot of what you're seeing right now is to avoid the whole regime altogether. Right. If if a place doesn't need to have California freelance contractors, there are a lot of folks that are saying, "Okay, let's just wash our hands of dealing with all that, at least right now in 2020, at least until it gets kind of sorted out. You know, one of the pieces of advice I wind up giving to clients a lot is, you know, the Jobs Act passes or we're working with new crowdfunding regulation or all these various things. We want to kind of suss it out for a little bit. Let's see where the IRS lands. Let's see where the state of California lands or their agencies land and see exactly what's going to happen. There's no doubt in my mind that AB5 is going to get amended at least a little bit, right? You've got all these lawsuits. You've got all this stuff. You've actually got the original kind of sponsor of the bill, I think sponsoring another bill that basically has one line in it that says the legislature will look at Dynamax and how to better describe its usefulness in the labor code. Like they, it's just a, essentially a resolution saying we're going we're gonna to think about this more, probably for her constituents. But just to say okay, there's been a lot of uh, anger, a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth on this. To some extent, having a bright line rule and then having, you know, seven exempt qualifications here and then another 14 here, but with specific other requirements and then business to business, which I know we're also going to talk about. Those aren't working the way we thought they would. You had a trucking lawsuit that got a, a, stayed for all trucking uh, by ambit of the federal judge. Uh, for a preemption reason, which we can also talk about if you're interested in that. But basically, you've got a lot of people arguing about AB5, and then you've got the Ubers and Lyfts of the world, which this was originally aimed directly at, also bringing lawsuits on more nebulous, amorphous grounds of kind of constitutional rights, economic due process, things of that nature. So there's no doubt in my mind that this will get amended to some extent. And so I, I always say, okay, we should probably, if you're my client, look at this, see how much freelance work you need in California. If the answer is you can do without it, without much difficulty, that's probably the best legal advice for dealing with a regime like this. And that's unfortunate for folks like you, absolutely, 100%. But that's kind of my job is to say, if you don't need this, we should probably opt out. You know, you mentioned, of course, that there are that there have been a a number of exemptions. And uh, I I am curious to know your legal perspective on why certain industries like uh, trucking has managed to, yeah, get a sort of stay uh, until like something can be further evaluated. And you have. Uh, I, I didn't. I failed to write down the list, but there are. Like, I've got the, the, the list. I'm ready. The movie. The, the movie industry. <laughs> the movie industry is the biggest among them. Uh, they they managed to include language in AB5 that says the the movie industry mostly isn't uh, going to have AB5 applied to it. And I think that that just speaks to the general lobbying power of these various industries, you know, movies and and tech. Uh, 
uh, who, who of course, California's economy largely depends on. Sure. Uh, so, of course, they are exempt from this law. It's almost like they knew that there, <laughs> that some of these industries just wouldn't work the same with that law in place on them. So tell me what your legal perspective about some of those exemptions and what they really mean for uh, why this the law was written the way it is and what its impact will ultimately be. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think this is going to assuage anybody's concerns about corporate lobbying or anything like that. But I mean, that's basically what happened here. So you can actually go and read the interviews with the legislature about AB5 and see that, oh, they surveyed all sorts of labor groups and all sorts of industry groups. And this is how they came up with these lists. Uh, One of the things I I think I said in my video, but which I always recommend for people to do when there's something controversial that affects employee and labor law is go look to see where the lawyers put themselves. Uh, And the lawyers are the ones that write these statutes. And they, of course, are exempt from its application. And that should tell you a little bit about how they feel about who should have flexibility and who shouldn't. So Mm -hmm. those kinds of professional classes, I think it's insurance agents, lawyers, engineers, those kinds of folks, they get exempt just straight up. Uh, on the premise, I think probably on the argument that those folks are licensed, they have other requirements, they probably don't need the protection of the state to make sure they aren't getting, uh, I think, exploited is the word they actually use at the top of AB5, and that they are more concerned with uh, lower level non-licensed professional service providers that could otherwise get uh, negative ramifications from whatever kind of classification an uh, an employer puts on them. Um, the problem is you've got that list, which is absolutely exempt and Borello applies that balancing test applies to them. And then you've got another set of folks that are exempt, like marketing professionals, travel agents, graphic designers, which could come up in certain aspects of video game and interactive technology development. And this is also where your, your freelance writers come in. Those aren't entirely exempt. They actually have another set of rules that apply to them. They're only exempt if they have a separate business location, if they have the ability to set and negotiate their own rates, which I was going to ask you about, actually, uh, that they have the ability to set their own hours uh, and those kinds of things. There's another set of rules that they won't be exempt unless they hit all of those. And so you have, I, I think I described it as nested exemptions. And I think it's really designed towards one, the lobbying power of the professional groups, especially lawyers, definitely. And two, yes, some understanding that some of this will break down if we don't exempt how these operate. And we don't actually want to bust up all of the California economy. We're mostly aimed at Uber and Lyft, uh, but we didn't want to look like we were just aiming at two companies because that has its own constitutional problems. So we're going to apply it generally with these sets of exceptions. But in terms of philosophy, I don't know if you got them in a room one-on-one and you had a truth serum applied, they could tell you why X, Y, and Z are on that list. Other than they had lobbying power, they got into the room, they were able to talk about what the law says, and they were able to get these exceptions for themselves. I don't think that there's a philosophy that says freelance writers should be exempt if they meet these rules and then not exempt if they make 36 pieces for a specific employer. You know, there's all Mm -hmm. these kinds of arbitrary lists, arbitrary requirements and unfortunately, you know, I would love to tell you that's not the case for a lot of statutes across the country, but it is. And, and that's one of the issues that you have is there's a certain amount of arbitrariness in the law and that rubs a lot of people the wrong way very often. So it, it's funny that you mentioned you, you were going to ask me like the the sort of 
separate your ability to negotiate your own rates yes well so go ahead and ask me like what you wanted to ask oh no i was just it's one of those areas where freelance writers are like on my twitter and social media talking about this in a lot of uh, areas and one of the things that always jumps out at me is that they are not in the purely exempt list even with the 35 they only do 10 they're only exempt if they have all those things. And one of them is, you know, set own hours and negotiate own rates. If California really wanted to be uh, mean about this, and I, I don't think there's any appetite for that at all. But if they did, you look at that and you say, well, you know, a writer on a deadline with a standard contract from a uh, entity mm-hmm. probably isn't, quote unquote, negotiating their own rates and setting their own hours for this purpose necessarily. You, got, you start getting into those fights. Uh, and, and that always becomes an issue when you talk about the actual enforcement of a law. I, I guess, yeah, like the the majority of my work in the last five years has been, hey, here's what we expect and here's the rate we're going to pay. And there have been instances, particularly like as I as I've grown more experienced and confident in my, you know, self business uh, where, I, where I've been able to say like, A, I, I clearly did more work than, you know, $200 would account yeah, for. Yeah, sure. Can, yeah. I, can, I, can I get like 400 since I interviewed like four more people than we accounted for kind yeah. of thing and, and all that. And if you, have a, if you have a good boss, they'll usually say yes and they'll make it work. Um, uh, but I, I, I think that that is the exception. Uh, there are a lot of sites that, will just even if even if you know that they're gritting their teeth through and they they feel bad about it like they can't afford to pay more than whatever sure. their rate was or or maybe they're so powerful that like uh when I first started freelancing it was for Playboy I got really lucky and I wrote like maybe 8 or 10 little features for them and I probably could have asked for a little more money but I think I think my editor probably had a pretty strict uh, ruling from their superior saying, "Hey, this is a newish thing. We're testing out games coverage. Uh, sure. We're at, we're absolutely not willing to bend on like three hundred dollars for a thousand. Here's the number. Something. Yeah, yeah. So uh, by that measure, I think that most of games media, anyway, I, I have no idea about game dev. Uh, definitely is a little more strict than it is uh, uh, free." to to ask for different varying negotiated pay rates yeah yeah and like i said you know i don't want to be doom and gloom i think it's very easy for lawyers to kind of talk that way and it's probably very easy for people to hear that from me uh i don't think there's any appetite to kind of come hard on these various things from the state of california who's currently otherwise you know batting away all of the problems that are with ab5 otherwise so it's just it's interesting to me as a lawyer to look at that and say, yeah, what does ability to set your own rates mean in comparison to an employee's ability to negotiate their salary? I mean, it's are you looking for something more there to fall under that bucket? And it, it, it all kind of unravels when you start taking all of these all at once, right? There's mm-hmm. the seven tests there. There's the three tests up above. You just have a lot to take into account. And if you're trying to avoid what amounts to ambiguity in the classification, I don't know that this was the best way to go about it, right? You've got in your preamble to this. We want to avoid mischaracterization. We want to make it easier. You have that in the press conferences that people are saying about AB5. And then you have two different sets of exceptions written over 10 full pages of the statute. And one of the really interesting things about AB5 is the actual operational thing, the ABC test that we talk about, you can read in four lines. It's two seconds long. The exceptions take up 30 pages. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and, And that's how the law is written. And that always... It just from my suspicious mind as a lawyer, I look at that and say, uh, okay, that's an interesting way to go about 
putting together what should be an umbrella policy that should apply equally if that was your goal. You know, we talk a little bit about uh, uh, the the possible different avenues for games media workers to to take to circumnavigate AB5. Uh, it's funny we say that because I, I called up Lorena Gonzalez's office uh, yeah. just like five days ago, maybe. Okay. And and I I had a aide uh, tell me that hey, you can you can get around this if you form. Uh, don't quote me here, an LLC uh, or some sort <laughs> that of That is business. an entity type, yes. Yeah, or, or some sort of company. <laughs> yeah, or some sort of business to business exemption, right? Sure. Uh, and you start to Google that and, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like at least California, that's like an extra $800 a year kind of business license and then some other fees on top of that. And I actually, I was like, okay, uh, I, I'm willing to bite a bullet maybe because I could make that money up in a month or two, I suppose. Uh, so I, I tossed that info to my superiors at IGN who then tossed that to their legal team. Sure. Uh, and the long and short of the response I got back was that still won't work because it still doesn't meet um, the, the requirements of the, the tests and the requirements of the law. Yep. What, to explain that to me because it seems like I, I, <laughs> I almost was getting talked down to of like, oh, silly, just go ahead and do this other thing. That's, that's the exemption we've opened up for you uh, freelance writers. Uh, and I was like, okay, fine, I'll try this. And like, I hate you still, but like, I'll do this thing you say to do. <laughs> but then to get told, you know, by a, by a major media company that has good lawyers, of that, course. Like, no, that, that still won't work and that'll still put so much liability on the company. Uh, explain that to me if you can. Sure. Well, uh, I agree just sitting here with, with IGN's lawyers that I don't think it does work. I think certainly just from a kind of um, uh, inference point of view, you can understand that it probably wasn't intended to work or else you wouldn't need the freelance writer exception uh, in the main body of the exception language, right? Uh, but the business-to-business -business contract exemption might work in certain respects for the actual game development industry, which we can talk about. Uh, but yes, for please, you, yeah. in particular, the writing, um, there are certain qualifications that have to happen. Basically, it says Borello. The balancing test will only apply if there are bona fide business contracting happening between businesses. However, you also have to meet these other things. And the big thing that I think pops up that is why you probably got the answer you got from IGN is that you have to provide services directly to the contracting business itself instead of its customers. So when we talk about what you do or what a writer does in general for something that puts out a website, uh, I think that the better argument is that that isn't being done for the business. It's going directly to the customers. You're making their right. product for them. Uh, and that's specifically not allowed. Uh, the business, content. <laughs> yeah, content. Exactly. So the, the business to business notion is, um, you know, you can have a business and you can be sending something into another business that helps it do what it does without being considered an employee. But if it's something that is just they're essentially subcontracting, uh, they're, they're getting a product out of you then that's not going to be allowed for this exception. And there's actually, I think, 11 or 12 different rules here, uh, including that you have to be you know, properly licensed, as you say. And I, I, I believe it is $800 the last I checked in California. That's a little bit unusual. Um, you know, California is one of those expensive states. Uh, mm -hmm. If you have an LLC in Michigan, I think it's 35 uh, a year. Um, so it's, it's 
it's something that you got to be cognizant of. Uh, but yeah, it also doesn't solve the, the situation for you. And you can understand why. They actually didn't want people to go and make solo LLCs and avoid right. all this. Because yeah, that would like... essentially have every individual just make a solo LLC. Um, so that's that wasn't what this was built for. You got a little bit of bad advice from an aide in a legislative office. That's not unusual. Um, but they, they probably get a lot of those calls, honestly, especially now uh, with it in the first month of being enforced. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me. It also doesn't surprise me that IG had said, uh, no, we don't think so. Um, but it is what it is. And so the business to business is supposed to get certain protections to certain groups that are supporting other businesses, but not that have that kind of customer facing relationship. So then I suppose, tell me, uh, you seem like you've, you've amongst all this, you've been really passionate about the, uh, the end result of the lawsuits that are now in play. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's very I, interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm very ignorant on that subject. Tell me, tell me what's going on in that space and like what kind of impact it could have. Sure. So you have two major prongs of the lawsuits. The one that we talked about really briefly before is the trucking lawsuit, where essentially the interstate truckers came out and said that this was a violation of their rights, but not just constitutional rights. And we're going to talk in a second about why that's difficult. That's a difficult case to bring whenever you're talking about just general rights, but actually was preempted by federal law. So the Constitution uh, gives the federal government certain rights to govern the interstate commerce among the states. And so they have certain regulations regarding things like trucking that goes across state lines. And so these truckers said those laws that the federal government put into place preempt different laws. And that's a case that right now was one. It was a preliminary injunction, which means the court basically said they have a good chance of winning ultimately. And so we are going to enjoin the imposition of AB5's requirements against those people right now. That's still up for grabs. As we said earlier, court cases take a long time. Uh, but when you win that injunction, it basically means that the law doesn't apply to you for a, a certain amount of time until that court case is fi finally determined. So they won on the premise that the federal government has said X, Y, and Z about what should be an employee and what should be a contractor for these purposes. And you can't come in and affect interstate commerce in this way. That's, that's preempted by federal law. That's the easier case to make because you've got a direct law to actually point your eyes at and a federal judge that you can say, hey, look at this. This covers this already. The Uber and Lyft kind of prong of cases, and they aren't the only ones bringing these, uh, but that prong of cases is mostly related to constitutional rights, more amorphous kind of civil rights concepts, economic due process, uh, which is the way of saying the Constitution has embedded in it a notion of due process, which is a kind of term of art, but also pretty amorphous and can be used for a lot of what various people want it to mean. And it's actually economic due process, that people should have the right to associate, that you should have the right to say, okay, I understand I would be more protected if all this applies to me, but I don't want that. I actually don't want to be a full-time employee anywhere. I want to have 16 relationships. I don't want that to mean that all 16 have to treat me as an employee. I want to run a different life and I deserve that flexibility and that the constitution reserves for me that right. Now, one of the reasons that's a difficult case to make is, as you can imagine, the founders didn't have a great deal of understanding of what Uber and Lyft would look like yeah. here in 2020. Call, and call so, a horse, yeah. Exactly. So you have to call a horse, yeah. yeah. So you have to... You have to bring that claim on a kind of uh, analog basis. You have to kind of establish how this all works, why you should be given those rights. And those are always going to be more difficult to make. And there's always going to be a 
kind of conservative, not in political bent, but just in kind of approach to the judiciary not wanting to make very broad sweeping constitutional determinations. So those are hard cases to bring. Doesn't mean they can't be won. You see them won all the time, but those are the ones that win are out of, you know, 2,000 or multiple thousands of cases that are brought on those premises. Those are much harder to bring uh, because ultimately the state does have certain rights to govern its own labor force and to regulate that labor force. And that's been acknowledged across the various states of the country. And so if you don't have that federal law to point to for preemption purposes or, or something specific to actually claim, and you're, you're finding yourself in the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment and all these various other conversations, that's going to be a more difficult claim. And the state of California knows that. Uh, even Uber and Lyft know that, in all honesty. They know it's a tough one, but they want to have that publicity, and they, they could possibly win it, and they could certainly make life difficult for California in doing so. And I, I think that's part of the pressure to get this amended. Now, the biggest irony of all would be if it stays as AB5 and somehow Uber and Lyft are specifically exempted from the thing. That's a possibility, certainly, with the power and money that they have <laughs> behind them. And that would be, you know, that, that would be the, uh, the, the cherry on top of the sundae for, for folks like you, definitely. Definitely. Uh, so, so if I understand correctly, uh, it seems like the the one of the most difficult aspects of uh, uh, making one of those lawsuits successful and and reverting some of AB five is just the fact that there's been a lot of uh, uh, legal precedent already set. Right. Uh, well, I, how do you mean? Uh, just. With Dynamex and with uh, previous statutes and and the fact that I, I don't know I I I I claim ignorance on this one I suppose <laughs> yeah I don't think precedent is the issue as much as it is a general reluctance to find new rights uh, and so Uber and Lyft and and the lawsuits that kind of follow in that tact of civil rights uh, have to go and show that this is such an affront to their rights that it should not be allowed. Mm -hmm. And the state of California basically has to go in there and say either A, it's not, it's not actually a restriction on your rights. This is a normal regulatory environment. This is just a classification scheme. This gotcha. just relates to payroll taxes. It just relates to other things that we have in place. You can still work there. It's just more expensive for your employer. Uh, and they can also say, even if it were an infringement on your rights, whatever those might be, the state generally has the authority if it's compelling if it's, if it's rational basis, all these other various things that we can get into for judicial scrutiny of a specific law that is challenged on constitutional or other grounds, that they can go and they can say, yes, even if it infringes, there are certain ways that we are allowed to infringe for the general welfare, for safety and things like that. And so it is a very difficult kind of road to take if you are challenging the law on that basis. Uh, and so probably a lot of the a lot of the push for this is to get this amended to get it reworked into a fashion that the various industry players can live with if not like and i think that's what you are seeing here because those lawsuits are very very difficult to win mm -hmm. in in our last stretch here of time that we've got i want to make sure that we're focusing a little bit on uh, game devs themselves because i know we've been talking about media uh, sure mostly um, you mentioned earlier, and I, I kind of failed to follow up on it, but you mentioned earlier the like business to business exemption for game devs might have a different uh, outcome or impact than it would for media. Can you explain that? Yeah. So we talked about the fact that software development in general, game development is very often project based. And so you do bring in contractors, you do bring in temporary workers to kind of help get things across the finish line, maybe to bulk up on concept artists early on, that kind of thing. And the business to business exemption could 
very definitely work in that respect, right? If you think of, okay, we want 20 more concept artists making cards for our Hearthstone clone, and we want, to work, we want them working for the first six months of the project, but we don't really want them to be employees, then if there is a contract house that moves these people out and puts them into various places in the game industry or, or elsewhere, then that could be something that's business to business because they're making that concept art for your product, but they're not making the product. They're not making that that goes out to the customer. They're actually just helping it get made. Uh, mm-hmm. Even then, you could potentially have arguments, of course, then all this is ambiguous because none of this has been litigated because it's only been in existence for a month. But that's the kind of thing that I would see happening. I, that's the kind of thing that I would uh, be willing to bet is happening in terms of in-house counsel, talking to outside counsel, various things in California. How can this be organized? What does this look like? And kind of the best case scenario is, all right, we probably can't use individual contractors if there's just a very specially uh, gifted person. They probably have to now go through some kind of clearinghouse, so it's business to business, and these various other things that could happen in order to get us to a place where we can comply with AB5. And that's what I would expect to see on kind of the best case scenario. Probably a reorganization, a, a look at how we are operating at the video game level or, or, or movies or films or anywhere else that could potentially trip AB5 in various ways. And maybe that winds up having a more specific, more codified, more formal temporary work structure. I think you see that a lot anyway. I think you see a lot of contractors moving through those kinds of offices mm-hmm. and you have a secondary question of, you know, now they have to be employees of that entity and does that actually filter through in a bad way as well? And all this stuff kind of ha- takes a while to filter through as a process of all of this. But I don't think the game industry is, is doomed or anything in California. It is the kind of thing that is going to require a look at, and it's going to require compliance costs just to pay for folks like the lawyers or the HR people to look at how this needs to be organized. And then it's going to cost something to actually implement compliance measures if and what are necessary to do that. Do you do you think that organizations like the ESA or other major studios uh, are going to dive into this in in any sort of legal sense? Do you think that I, like you know a statement will be made or or, or a, a legal maneuver will be made? I got to be honest with you. I, I don't know what the ESA is doing on this. I, I would have expected them to at least be in the room and chatting with the folks involved on this to to talk about exceptions and things like that. And, and maybe they did, and it wasn't successful. I actually haven't seen any indication that that happened. Um, but it is exactly the kind of thing that, frankly, the ESA is built for. Uh, a lot of the industry lives in California. To the extent it affects their industry, they should absolutely be in the room. And, and AB5, honestly, affects all of, all of California's industries. Uh, and so it would surprise me if they didn't at least have a call or, or talk about these various things. Uh, but then again, you know, the ESA has been having a, a rocky year. I, they, I think they changed CEOs uh, in the last 12 months or so. Yeah. Uh, and, and as a having... member of the media, I know that all too well. They leaked my information online, so I feel great about the ESA. Right. They leaked the information. They got the E3 PowerPoints out there. You know, it's, it's, it's been an interesting year for the ESA. And you don't know whether that impacted, whether they had the eye on the ball here, whether a change in leadership wound up with something falling through the cracks. I can't speak to that. But Mm -hmm. this is exactly the kind of thing that the ESA should be looking at. And if it does wind up looking like it's going to affect, especially their their principal members, the ones that really pay the bills, the the Activisions and Electronic Arts of the world, uh, I would expect the ESA to, to get in there and at least say, hey, game development in some fashion should be exempt. And if we need to talk about what the contours of that look like, fine. 
but we don't see anything that actually protects our people right now. And we really need to talk about that because we are a project based industry. And it's funny that you mentioned the um, the having to go through a clearinghouse aspect of this because that is actually sort of what is happening to me now with my uh, weekend job at yeah, IGN okay. is I've I've be- I've become not quite a contractor. I am now reporting to a different company who is contracting my services back to IGN and it's it's fine like I got a five dollar pay raise out of it but like I'm still I I know I'm still losing money because of it and I still can't write the news but as for game devs I suppose um I'm sure you're aware that like other states are looking at uh similar legislation um to to ostensibly do the same kind of thing that ab5 is and i'm I'm sure state to state you know the impact will be a little different the language will be a little different but uh this is obviously not just something that could impact california it could impact every other major state and particularly states where you know media industries like games uh are are prevalent so uh, have you been following up on what uh, other states are doing and like what the impact might be there I've honestly only seen kind of discussion points uh, about people following the impact of AB5. So if there's something that's more uh, sponsored, something that's actually on a floor somewhere in the state legislatures, I actually haven't seen it. So I apologize for that. But it wouldn't surprise me. California is very often uh, the leader on this kind of stuff for uh, kind of specific states. Uh, New York tends to pay a lot of attention to California, Massachusetts. I think the other major one is New York. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are California is often a bellwether for these kinds of things, and there are other states that pay attention to them. So it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, it's certainly something that, given kind of the tumult in California, it wouldn't surprise me if those states want to um, uh, take a step back and just kind of wait and see how this all plays out uh, in California. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting one because you do have an existing Department of Labor and federal regulation that really does set the balancing test that has been, in my opinion, you know, mostly fine uh, across the country. Uh, it, there are always bad actors. There's honestly going to be bad actors with AB5 and anything else that you put into place. Um, but I think outside of those bad actors, a balancing test probably makes sense for what is a rapidly transitioning economy uh, that you probably don't want to set a, a line in the sand for what employment looks like in 2020 when I'm not sure it won't look entirely different in 2030. Uh, but that's, that's my opinion. That's, that's not a legal kind of argument. Uh, and so that's what the legislature gets paid for ultimately is to mm-hmm. decide what kind of contours they want to put in place. And as you said, uh, in this podcast, uh, there are legitimate good faith reasons to want to see people more protected. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there can't be unintended consequences that wind up being worse. Uh, but it does mean that, you know, one of the things that happens on the internet that I, I like to try to avoid, and we certainly try to avoid in virtual legality, is, you know, assuming bad faith on the part of these people. It's very easy to do that online and the internet. And I think there were a lot of good reasons to want to protect more people from an adoption of a law like this. Uh, I think it's the wrong kind of tact to take. Um, but that's uh, that's not my job. And so I do think the legislature is in general trying to trying to do good things for people, even if I disagree with what ultimately popped out. It's not necessarily a, um, a a legal kind of thing, but it, mentioning yeah the the 
wanting to assume good faith on the part of most of these people is I, I agree important. I think, though, some of the some of the well has been poisoned because of uh, <laughs> the reactions of politicians like Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. It it is as far at least as far as writers are concerned. I, I, I don't know what the um, I hear uh, you. Yeah, you you just get a lot of pushback from people like her, and the I think the the stuff that really makes my blood boil is her and her uh, colleagues kind of saying uh, all these anti AB five people on Twitter. I think they're bots because like it's all they talk about. It's like, <laughs> well, if you lost half of your work or more. Uh, I think you would talk about something pretty frequently, too. And I'm accused of being a bot from time to time. It, it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, leaving off here, last question for you, Richard. Sure. Uh, just going forward, I know that um, according to the call I made to Lorena Gonzalez's office, there's possibly going to be some sort of clarification to the bill in March, but that would also require a like emergency uh, uh, action on their part. Otherwise, it might take like all the way till January first, twenty twenty one, to implement you know the a, a, a non thirty five submission cap kind of language in there. Uh, what is what is the short term future here of AB five for Californians and for game media freelancers and game dev freelancers? What can we expect in the next couple months? You think? Well, I think with the pending discussions about what is actually in the bill and the pending uh, litigation, I think you're going to see a lot more of what you saw from the, you know, the call for writing that uh, I think went out from GameSpot last week or the week mm. before, which is where we'd love to have some freelance pitches. Sorry, no California. Yeah. Um, Californians best, need not apply. <laughs> yeah. Californians need not apply. I, I, and I think, um, you know, I, I hate to say it, but if I were counseling these folks, as I said earlier, uh, that's probably the right play for right now. Yeah. Um, because it might all change. It might not ever apply like it's currently written for calendar year 2020. But right now, you basically have to assume that it will. And it's very difficult to comply in certain respects for certain businesses, like with respect to freelance writing. And so I think you are going to see companies say all right, we're not going to deal with contractors in California to the extent we don't have to. Uh, and if you've got a multinational or if you've got an internet-based company, you're going to have a lot more of that. Uh, no Californians for now. Thank you very much. Uh, and I think to the extent that kind of thing becomes more public, change becomes more likely. Mm -hmm. California doesn't want that. The legislature doesn't want that. Um, and so I think you are going to see certain changes in the law in the near future. Whether or not those will be better is an open question. Certainly, the existing drafting of AB5 suggests that it might not be. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a terribly elegantly written law. Uh, and I don't like to judge on these things because there's a lot of sausage making that goes into statute writing. Uh, <laughs> but it's not terribly elegant. And so the corrections are either going to be wholesale, in which point AB5 might as well not exist, or they're going to be kind of nibbling around the edges and maybe make no one happy. Uh, at least in the first go. So that's what I see in the near future. I see more of those kinds of uh, we're avoiding Californians type of plays, but not forever. I don't I don't know that this will become the law of the land uh, in places like New York, uh, and I don't know that it will stay the law of the land in California. Uh, I think ultimately there are more people that want to have that flexibility uh, that it's probably best to try to think up another approach. 
if you want them to have more protections than to just mandate that they're employees when they don't otherwise want to be. Maybe it's opt out uh, at the employee level. It obviously uh, risks things like pressure campaigns, and that becomes its own issue. Yeah. Uh, But you can have those kinds of conversations because right now what you are seeing is that there are well-educated, reasonable people that want to make a living in a fashion that right now the California law basically doesn't afford them the opportunity to. And that's not okay with a bigger and bigger set of of people. And that's going to, that's probably going to ultimately win the day, whether that's, you know, this year, next year, 10 years, that's harder to say. And, you know, we didn't really touch on it too much, but I think a valid point to make of uh, uh, freelancing is something that it appeals to a particular set of people for a for a wide variety of reasons, including uh, disability access uh, or or other life factors, you know, such as a, a parenthood or anything like that. And it for the many many problems that freelancing presents in life, and for a lot of the exploitation that there is, I think it is important to allow avenues for people for you know people with disabilities or people with uh, uh, difficult life circumstances to still work in the field that they want to, but on their own terms, you know, uh, not everybody is destined for a nine to five, uh, kind of Monday, Friday job and that's okay. But, uh, we will certainly keep talking about AB five as it continues. Um, I, I hope to be writing some on the subject, hopefully depending on if some pitches go through and Richard, where can people find Hogue law and where can people find virtual legality and all the other work that you do as a legal expert in uh, games and tech? Sure, absolutely. Well, my day job is I actually am a lawyer. So I'm doing this kind of business work for my clients. And you can find my law firm website at www.hoaglaw.com. Hogue is H-O-E-G. I get various spellings across the internet. Hopefully you can find me with any spelling of Hogue, but it is H-O-E-G. Uh, I'm also pretty active on Twitter, uh, where we talk about these kinds of things all the time, as well as my love of Michigan football and the fact that we haven't beaten Ohio State in like 14 years. No. Uh, so you can find me at Hogue Law uh, on Twitter. And then finally, we have Virtual Legality. Uh, we also have a series called Two Hogues Are Better Than One on the YouTube channel, which is me talking to my game developer brother who works at High Moon Studios, a subsidiary of Activision currently working on Call of Duty and has worked on Destiny and Ratchet and Clank and have fun conversations about game development and and business from his perspective in California and working for those companies. And you can find those kinds of things at uh, youtube.com slash hoaglaw. And so we love talking about business and law and we hope to see you there. And folks, I'm going to include some information in the show description you'll see below you on SoundCloud and all the other platforms. Um, If AB5 is something that's impacting your career in games media or is just impacting someone you know or someone you're a fan of, Uh, Or even if you just have strong opinions of it, regardless of whether or not it's impacting somebody on you, uh, please feel free to contact your local representatives, um, your preferred presidential candidates, uh, and particularly Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, Governor Gavin Newsom of California. Uh, And if you live in California, please contact your own assembly person. And let's make sure that we're not letting something like this uh, negatively impact the industry and negatively push people uh, of any background out of games media because, of course, it is a a tight 
small field that is only getting tighter every year, and we need to make sure that Californians are able to uh, you know, work in the way that they see is best for them. So I'll include those show notes in there. And of course, you can find a new episode of the 1099 mostly every week. I've given up on saying every Monday, but mostly every week. <laughs> uh, and certainly it's going to be a little late this week, but uh, here on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and any other podcast platform of choice, including my favorite Google Play, ironically. But uh, so yeah, folks, thank you for listening. And I hope you learned something and we will see you next week with simon parkin author of a game of birds and wolves uh, a wonderful book about uh, women in world war ii uh, who designed a life-size board game to help uh, combat the tactics of german u-boats it's going to be a great one so thanks so much folks and see you next time (laughs) 